Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One, Mark and Mark. And we have another person tonight that is not a Mark. Mr. Matt Sakaris joins us on the podcast tonight. Guys, coincidentally, episode 250. I just checked it in the in the catalog. So Matt, you're, you're joining us on a, a very, I guess, auspicious day, which is a really kind of cool. But we got a lot of stuff to talk about. And this is really cool because, uh, you know, uh, if you're in Vancouver, you'll know who Matt Sakaris is and his longtime uh, broadcast partner, Blake Price. Blake isn't here. Apparently, he was just outside standing on the porch uh, with, a, with a microphone. And uh, I told one of the kids to tell me he had the wrong house. But, you know, <laughs> it got a little bit awkward there. But uh, joking aside, welcome aboard, Matt. It's great to have you here tonight. Well, Mark, thanks for uh, inviting me. I must say, uh, I was... Uh, so happy to see that uh, there was F1 digital space and, and podcast work being done here in Vancouver in my own backyard. Um, so it's awesome to connect with a couple of BC F1 fans. And uh, 250 for you, I believe tomorrow is episode 50 for us of the new show, uh, and Price at SecarisonPrice.com. And we nearly did 10 years at at 1040. So milestones all around, fellas. Congrats. That's awesome. And likewise, uh, you know, I don't really want to go back and circle back uh, around the, you know, the the traumatic experience that was the sudden demise of Team 1040. But, uh, you know, it's really great to see. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) But it's really great to see that uh, that you and Blake were able to to pick it up and, uh, you know, you know, basically pick up where you guys uh, left off and uh, as did a lot of the other people that uh, were working at uh, 1040 uh, before. So uh, it's really kind of cool, like you say, that uh, we were talking about it just off air just now, that uh, we're, we're finding more and more that there are, there is an F1 community here in Vancouver. But uh, just for the benefit of uh, our audience, because basically we get uh, listeners and viewers from all four corners of the globe, just uh, and this is a good time because this is a show that uh, we, we, we rely heavily on puns. So this is the time to establish your street cred. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. I know. If you're looking for sophisticated humor, you're not going to get it on this show, I'm afraid. <laughs> gotcha. gotcha. You've set the tone. I have, sadly. I look forward to Hamilton. Um, good F1 name, incidentally. Um, look, uh, I, uh, I've been a fan of the sport almost all my life, like 35 plus years, for sure. 40, you know, coming on, actually, 40, coming on 40 years here. Um, we're a Montreal family, uh, on both sides. Uh, my dad's family had a little, uh, they'd call it a chalet. We'd call it a cabin in British Columbia, in the, uh, <laughs> Laurentian mountains of Quebec, St. Agathe, which is right near Circuit Mont-Tremblant, the, the legendary, uh, track up there that has produced so many drivers, even hosted a couple of F1 Canadian Grand Prix back in the day. So my dad would go to races there and, uh, my grandfather on the other side, my dad's father-in-law really the only moments of peace that my poor grandmother and mother got between the two of them uh, was when the Formula One race was on because he was a Brit and uh, he was a fan of motorsport. And so I had influences on both sides sort of steering me towards the sport. Um, So knee high to a grasshopper, I went to a a couple of um, uh, Canadian Grand Prix back in the early 80s. Oh, cool. Uh, I believe Nelson PK won one, if not uh, both, and have just uh, followed the sport since. Like uh, I can go back to the days when I was on tape delay, like late at night on a Sunday night uh, on CBC, uh, and, and back to the old days on TSN with Vic Router. Um, so it's been uh, really rewarding to watch this like 
more than just an uptick, right? Like it is a pretty heavy surge here uh, of popularity in F1. When you take a look at some of the numbers that TSN is doing now for this sport on a Sunday morning, like early on a Sunday morning in the Pacific uh, time zone, uh, and how it's uh, sort of growing globally and with young people and on social thanks to Drive to Survive. So yeah, exactly. Uh, time to be an F1 fan right yeah. now. And I have to ask as well, and I, I don't know if our listeners necessarily have enough context, but you yourself, you've been deeply embedded in professional mainstream sports media yeah. for, for years and decades from yes. your perspective, because for, for myself and Mark Daly, you know, we've kind of lived in this cocoon, this F1 cocoon for the better yeah. part of our lives. And, you know, we surround ourselves with people that are passionate about F1. So we kind of have this ecosystem. But for us, it seems like that that ecosystem now is expanding exponentially. From, from your perspective, are you starting to see the coverage, the interest permeate the mainstream media? Because for us, we attract people that have an interest because that's our principal sure. responsibility. But from your sure. perspective, what are you seeing? Yeah. So you're so right, Mark. Like I've been involved in Canadian sports media and newspapers and radio for 20 years. And like I have barely talked the sport on our, on my show. Uh, I have barely written about the sport uh, for the print outlets that I worked for. Um, and really, when you don't have to go too far back, like there was very little of F1 in the Canadian mainstream uh, sports media. You know, Journal de Montréal, certainly with Jacques Villeneuve, and, and the French press covered it pretty religiously. Uh, I covered a Super Bowl once with a writer from Journal de Montréal named Dominic Fougère, and he used to be on the F1 beat. Like, and I used to say, good God, like, that's the best beat in the world. Around, <laughs> the, around the world on somebody else's dime covering these uh, races. Um, you know, Toronto started a little bit, and of course, uh, TSN, you know, would show the races and, and maybe even have a, uh, a preview show. Um, but it's nothing like it is now. Um, and you know, on my show now, I, I do get people like they know I'm an F1 fan now a little bit, so uh, we do get people submitting. You know, we have a lot of audience feedback uh, segments, and, and we have an audience that likes F1 and will throw things at so. Blake and Andrew, our producer, have had to sort of get a little bit literate <laughs> about the sport, which I'm not sure they would have had to uh, prior to Drive to Survive. Uh, in fact, even Ray Ferraro, one of the top hockey commentators in Canada, has said on our show, my family has all watched Drive to Survive. It's amazing storytelling, and now we're huge, now we're huge F1 fans. So uh, it's been really cool for me to see the conversation uh, increase in, in volume and in sophistication. And it's also um, been really cool to see um, to see it uh, infiltrate the, the mainstream media a little bit, you know. But frankly, Mark, I'm not sure it needs the Canadian mainstream media. It's a nice to do for mm -hmm. sure. It's kind of the last frontier, I would say, USA and Canada, in terms of the areas that F1 wants to to conquer. That it's not you know where it's not already a huge sport. Although you know, there's always China and India are so big, but um, yeah, no, uh, I, I, uh, you know, I, I'm delighting in conversations like this, and I'm so pleased to see you know a couple of Canadian guys hosting an F1 podcast here in my hometown. Well, you know, it's so cool too. Like you're saying, the uh, the, the whole drive to survive phenomena. We we've actually coined the term Gen DTS. We we get so many people tweeting us and emailing and, and getting in touch, and it's just like a. 
I watched a uh, DTS. I loved it. I found your podcast, whatever. And then I, I, I keep getting like phone calls and text messages for people I've literally lo- known my whole life. And they've known that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a big sports guy uh, in general, but uh, F1 is uh, probably, you know, one of my top two favorite sports. I'm soccer and, and, and uh, Formula One are my two favorites. And I don't know what it is, if it's just a, a function of the of the pandemic and people are just going to different content that they would have maybe not have co- you know consumed otherwise. But I've heard from so many yeah. people over the last year. There's like I, I watched the first season, I've been hooked, and you know now I'm on to season two. And my my good friend Jorge, he's uh, from, from Mexico, who I did the the soccer podcast with uh, for years. I mean, he's just like no football, no hockey, no basketball, no nothing else. It's just soccer, 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 soccer. And he texted me the other. And the other night, he said, I sat down with my wife to watch season one of, uh, of Drive to Survive, and I binged watched, and now we're on to season two. He's just like, this thing is amazing. I can't believe what I've been uh, been missing. I'm like, well, dude, you know, you've got like a Mexican driver in Formula I One. I thought you'd be, yeah. Parallel. I thought you had a national hero there, Carlos Slim's uh, favorite investment. <laughs> yeah, exactly you know, right. Uh, great, great track, too. Very uh, interesting grandstand. No, um. You know, like, here's the thing. I'm in an F1 pool at my old work. (laughs) The guy who fired me, he's the pool administrator. You know, like we taxed about the races. And we did shortly after he fired me. Um, (laughs) That's amazing. Those sorts of things I never conceived of. And, um, you know, the other thing that's most encouraging, you know, not that we don't matter in Canada, but we're only so many people, only so commercially viable. you know, now this Miami Grand Prix is going to join Austin. I saw something really, really intelligent uh, from a marketing point of view a couple months back for, uh, well, the start of the F1 season. Uh, Aston Martin um, got two of ESPN's television radio personalities into their cars in Los Angeles on like Rodeo Drive and things like that. But they picked uh, Marty Smith and Ryan McGee, Marty and McGee. And like Marty and McGee are like two good, good old boys from Tennessee and North Carolina, right? Like they are NASCAR as, you know, they speak and oil comes out, <laughs> that sort of thing, NASCAR. And so they're sort of like, you know, driving around, having fun, top down shades on in LA as people are noticing them. Uh, and obviously understanding, you know, at some point they're in an Aston Martin and, you know, that's a Formula One team. Um, but you know, that sort of really smart marketing in terms of how they're going to get the United States on board. And look, I don't know about you fellas, but when I started watching drive to survive, I was like, wow, this is, I watched it through an F1 lens, a long time F1 fans lens. I was like, wow, this is amazing storytelling. This is amazing access. This is amazing candor. This is amazing bravery and courage and character development and all the good things uh, all the things that good storytelling requires but at no point was i sort of watching it going this is going to turn f1 into a crossover head mm-hmm. I- i'd love to hear the two of you on that because we've now all heard so many stories about i got into f1 because of drive to survive and the pandemic may have been a part of that mark but i did not sort of realize until sort of the build up to season three that it had already had such a deep and dramatic effect across a broader segment of the population. You make you make such a terrific point. And just to provide a little bit of context for our listeners, I think it's important to kind of look at some of the 
the early numbers that ESPN and TSN have been seeing. So TSN is the national broadcaster in Canada. They're seeing numbers around 520 to 550,000 people per race, plus 20% comp. The U.S. is seeing plus 40, plus 50% comps. They're hitting a million viewers per race. Now, those numbers are a little bit skewed because they don't account for the number of people who are watching on legal streams or illegal streams. And let's be honest, there's probably a big segment of the population that's accessing these yeah. races illegally. And we're not factoring that kind of factoring for that, but I totally agree. And I never imagined when Netflix announced this series, and I think they announced it probably in 2016, 2017. And I remember some of the early kind of background shots of the crews and the pits. Never for a second did I think that this would be anything but an off-season marketing vehicle that would have very, very, very low curb appeal. The fact that it took on this cultural cachet in a way that it has is something that I never would have predicted. Never, never, never. And I think a big part of that is one, the storytelling, whether it's accurate or not, is incredibly compelling. Mm -hmm. And I think if it was released 20 years ago, the result would possibly have been different simply because you get to see a snippet of the drivers, but I think the access to the drivers via social media today helps unlock and connect you with their personalities in a way that maybe you wouldn't have been able to before. And I always say that if you look back to 2006 and it was Talladega, Talladega Nights, the uh, the Ballad of Ricky Bob, or the Ballad of, I can't even remember how to describe it. But <laughs> the, the whole concept of that film is you have this pretentious European Formula One driver that comes over to compete in NASCAR against the good old boys. But ultimately, that really summed up the perception of Formula One 20 years ago, which is, you know what, Formula One's a little bit stuffy. It's not accessible. It's a little bit pretentious. They're all white, wealthy, Western European drivers. They're, it wasn't accessible in the way it is now. But I think the combination of the Netflix show, which made it accessible to everybody because everyone has a Netflix account in combination with social media has brought in an audience that maybe we wouldn't have seen before. And the really, really important thing for F1 is it's the right demo, right? What we don't want is the Major League Baseball demo. You watch a Major League Baseball game and 60% of the commercials are for lawn fertilizer. That's not the demo you want. The demo that Formula One's attracting is younger and it's vibrant and it has some degree of disposable income. And I think it just goes to your earlier point too about Liberty, right? Like when Liberty bought Formula One, ultimately they had a couple ways to increase the value of that as a property. You could continue to squeeze your existing race organizers for additional hosting fees. You can put races in new locations, or you can tap in just like you said, to North America, where they hadn't even scratched the surface of the potential financially. Well, and Mark, like the thing is, is um, here's something that does cross over with my daily line of work covering North American sport. Um, this is the last frontier for soccer as well. Yep. Yes. It, yeah. it yes. is quite simply viewed as a European sport um, that is just now really getting any kind of real foothold and is doing a pittance of the viewership on television that Formula One is now. Um, the other thing relevant to the ratings is that it's on so early in the morning up and down the West Coast in the Midwest. Like, you know, there is a lot of uh, DVR viewing on F1 as well. Great uh, on top of the people who are watching and, and live. And, uh, you know, in terms of drive to survive, like, I would argue markets because the storytelling was so accurate, like because you were like, holy bleep, I can't believe they're doing this story about Alex Albom's mom and going <laughs> to jail. And like, yeah. you know, no, but honestly, like, you know, there were some people in the paddock who uh, 
who opened up some of their deepest, darkest, you know, like Seb Vettel sitting in the Ferrari driver meeting after having announced that he's moving to Aston Martin and them having sort of the, the PR pregame chat. Yeah. That's the sort of thing I never thought I would see as an F1 fan. And even if you don't know the sport, um, it was reasonably jarring sort of it's, you know, I've heard it called perfect reality television. And I, I think that's right because, you know, it's, F1 has always had flair. It's always had glamour. Uh, you know, it's always had excess. Um, and it's always had spoiled brat drivers to some degree and the feuds therein. So it's sort of been a perfect, um, it's been a perfect kaleidoscope of sort of things that appeal to a North American audience Yeah. now. And yeah, no, like I, I, you know, in preparing for this pod, I was thinking about it, you know, guys, like I, I think there are going to be some significant investments from Liberty and from some of those auto manufacturers and some of those drivers and just everything about Formula One, I think, is going to invest uh, pretty heavily here in North America over the next few years because I think this is the area, this is the corner of the globe yeah. uh, with the U.S. that you know the, has the most growth potential. And uh, quite frankly, you know, the U.S. is still the economy that you want to be deeply embedded it yeah absolutely and that's a, a great place uh, to leave it for the moment we're going to take a short break here when we come back uh, i've got a bunch of other things including an email from our favorite uh, listener bitter brad in pittsburgh he's got a question uh, for us so we'll do that right after the break uh, so don't go away and we'll be right back passion drive and patience the formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. And uh, Mark... You seem, uh, you, you've refreshed yourself. I guess you're all ready to go. But uh, just uh, before we uh, dive into the mailbag here, I just wanted to pick up on a couple of things that uh, that Matt was talking about just uh, before the break. And, uh, you know, the, the one thing that I totally agree with, oh, I agree with uh, basically everything Matt was saying, but the, the storytelling is so compelling. But there's one thing that uh, I don't know if this really has been mentioned uh, too much, because when the series first came out, I thought for, for people like uh, us that were already very invested, very interested in Formula One, I thought this was niche content content. And it didn't really necessarily take off in the first season. It's kind of, you know, it, it's been a bit of a slow boil, but especially since this last season came out, it's been exponential in the, in the growth. And it, it really is kind of, kind of interesting too, because the, the people that produced it, the box to box films, they also did that uh, documentary about Ayrton Senna that came out 
well, it's at least five, six, seven, maybe even eight or nine years ago, and basically detailing his entire life and up to his tragic death at Imola in 1994. And the storytelling in that film is uh, is just as compelling and just as good because when I watch that film, and I've tried to watch it a couple of times, that I've gotten to the point where they retell that uh, that that tragic weekend at Imola when first we lost Ratzenberg and then we lost uh, Senna a day later on race day. You know, the, the storytelling is, is so good and the, the way that uh, the, the film is done that the emotions, you know, get very, very real. And the, the uh, Paul Martin's the director that uh, he's he's obviously very talented in telling all these stories. And what I find so fascinating about uh, DTS that, uh, that he's pulling on all these different threads and he's able to sort of keep them going across multiple episodes and kind of tease you, even though there might be one specific episode, like uh, Matt was just saying about, uh, you know, about Sebastian Vettel and the whole move to Aston Martin, which I think was nicely summed up by Christian Horner, who said it's like breaking up with your girlfriend, but she's still living in your house. You know, which, you know I thought was uh, an interesting uh, comment, but uh, Mark, uh, you would put a tweet out or a tweet out on our Twitter feed uh, earlier today. And this is something that we've been uh, talking about uh, a little bit ourselves. And I think it works into nicely with the, uh, uh, an email from from Brad because uh, the, the, there was a, a little bit of context for Matt last week on the show. Brad had sent in a, a, an email questioning about the, the use of PEDs in Formula One and stuff like that. And so then Mark, seeing that he's from uh, Pittsburgh, immediately went to you know the, the the lowest common denominator and drag Barry Bonds into the conversation. <laughs> so that's where it kind of went. Anyways, Brad uh, he starts off his email or ends it and saying that Barry Bonds can suck it, which I think everybody can agree with. But uh, anyways, uh, the, the the question that uh, he uh, was bringing up um, is uh, just uh, in relation to the new cars, the new regulations that are coming into uh, Formula One for 2022, just kind of taking a look in the rearview mirror, you know, another nice uh, little, uh, you know, corny uh, metaphor there. Um, he wanted to know from the perspective of the cars, which is the best era of Formula One, in our opinions? Um, now I'll, I'll start off with mine. Uh, I particularly like the sort of the late 80s. You know, when you had like the, the McLaren Honda, the Williams Honda, the MP44, the, the, the FW11, all those sort of really classic, you know, like the Nigel Mansell, Nelson Piquet, Senna Prost at McLaren. But, you know, I, I realized at the same time that those teams, well, I guess it's no different than maybe the, the dominance we've seen of uh, Mercedes over the past several years. But I mean, they were very, very dominant in those years. But I think for me that I tend to look at this maybe from more of a, a nostalgic and a sentimental point of view, perhaps from... The, the, the sporting side of it when they got into that sort of Goldilocks zone that this era from 1990 to 95 or 1960 to 1970, whatever it might be, where the, where, where the cars and the, and, and the regs were really spot on. I'd be interested to hear what, uh, what either of you think uh, on that topic. Well, um, certainly when, uh, you know, the 80s and, and the era you talked about with, um, uh, um, that whole gang, Prost and Mansell and, and that whole gang. Um, it was a more difficult car to drive. Who are we getting, right? Mm -hmm. Like that was when you're manually shifting and, and, and all of that. I mean, that to me that was sort of a perhaps a bigger test of the driver. Um, but if we're just talking about the cars and not just aesthetically, because what I always tell uh, someone who doesn't know Formula One. Um, racing is the sound is just as incredible as the look mm -hmm. of the car. And the other thing, of course, they don't know is it's not just the way these things accelerate. It's the way these things break. 
Um, and, you know, having spent many a Canadian Grand Prix in the casino hairpin there, you know, to watch them enter that corner, uh, the first few times, it's like your eyes are deceiving you. Like you legitimately think that the car is running into the gravel crab through the tire barrier and in the stents. Like that's how fast it's going before it hits the. So I would say right now, they have the best combination of look and aesthetic, and that includes livery. Um, just the way they maneuver is so sleek uh, now. It, it's beautiful. It's, it's a little less ragtag, you know, you know, sliding around a little bit as they used to. Although, you know, that, that, you know, that has its value too back in the day, you know, when someone was really on some bad tires and just throwing the car all over the track. But, um, you know, about 10, 12 years ago, I went to a couple of Canadian Grand Prix and you had to wear the earplugs. And then they went to the hybrid engines and I, I missed it one year. My dad went and he went, oh, it's terrible. I'm never going back. They sound like go-karts, right? Um, we went a few years ago. We went uh, 2019, I guess it was. And, and to me now, it's the perfect sound without being so ear piercing that you have to put the earplugs in. The perfect look the perfect maneuverability. Um, like I watch them now and I go to some degree, this is the sport aesthetically and acoustically at its optimum. Yeah. You know, the fir- very first race that I went to was uh, the 2001 uh, European Grand Prix at the Nürburgring. And um, we were there for the, the entire weekend, but there was nothing like, uh, you know, seeing the cars come down the hill into the hairpin on that, uh, that very first lap. And I was, uh, I, I went with about, uh, we, we, we went with a big group. I think there was about eight or nine of us. And uh, you were all sitting there and we're, we're all well, a big group of friends. We were sitting there chatting. And of course, you know, when the race starts, you know, even talking to your buddy next to you, and you forget to put your earplugs in. And as soon as they came down into that you know, hairpin, and as soon as they put the foot down on the accelerator, the, the, the shrill noise from the however many uh, cars there was that year, 20 or 22, whatever it was, uh, you know, almost 20 years ago, it was it, it was painful. It was literally painful. And we were all fumbling for our earplugs uh, very, very quickly. And then my wife and I, we went uh, to the Spanish Grand Prix in 2014. So the very first year of the of the new era. And Mark, you've dragged her all over the planet. <laughs> I can see where this is going, Mark. Yeah, she's a. Let's just put it this way: I, I'm a very lucky guy. She yeah. clearly came off as a you know the the worst of the deal. But uh, you know the thing was that weekend I never put in the earplugs the entire uh, the entire three days that we were at the track. It was amazing contrast. It's funny you mentioned that. Yeah. Well, my- it's it's supposed to be. If you go live, it should, it really should be a sensory overload experience. Yeah. Like that's what you're paying for. Uh, and the tickets aren't cheap if you're going for a weekend. Um, so you, you should be, a, you should be stimulated your senses in ways that they're not stimulated in other places. And, you know, to me, that's what's so great uh, about sitting in a hairpin or, or sitting in an area where you see them decelerate to as slow as they're going to go into an area where they're up the gears and accelerating to as fast as, as they can go. Like coming in the hairpin now in Montreal, they sound like spaceships. Like it's an aviation noise. It's, hmm. it's a jet engine noise on, on the way in and on the way out. So Yeah, no, it's just marvelous. Like, um, you know, I've had a lucky career in sports media where I've got to 
to travel, certainly our continent, but a fair part of this world as well, going to different sporting events. And so I'm a little bit numb to a lot of the mainstream sports uh, that are out there and the live experience. You know, Formula One is the one that I still have um, – Sorry, guys. Formula One is the one that I, where I still, you know, it it stirs something in me that the others don't. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, and yeah. it's because you know there are some machines on track with some very very skilled pilots who who are doing things that it's really hard to conceive of. That your brain can't really process it all, and you're processing it for days and weeks afterwards. You make you make such a great point about that. And, and this is a question we get from a lot of our listeners is, hey, we're new to F1. I want to take my family. I want to take my girlfriend. I want to take my boyfriend to an F1 race this year. What should I expect? And I remember back in 2016 in September, my wife and I went to the MotoGP Grand Prix at Silverstone, UK. And one of the things so that- Mrs. Hamilton's been dragged around the world. Too. <laughs> There's I'm, a I'm, common theme okay, going on here. <laughs> All right. We, uh, we named our son Lewis. So I, I'll show that to oh, show my. you how deeply F1 runs in the family. But we, <laughs> we went to the MotoGP race and yeah. the sound and the sensation of those bikes, it rippled through your core. Yeah. And we went to the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, the, the finale of this F1 season in 2016, a few months later in, in Abu Dhabi. And we're sitting in the, grand, in the primary grandstands immediately across from the, the garages. And the sound couldn't compare. Like, I like the sound, but it wasn't that sensation. But we were back at a Grand Prix in 2018. And they'd done some revisions between the 2017 and 2018 season because there was so much negative feedback about what they'd done to the experience of F1 that mm -hmm. it was back again. It was a completely different experience. I'm like, this is what I'm paying for when I'm sitting in a corner, when I'm sitting at club corner at Silverstone, and I've got these cars attacking in the corner. I need to feel that, and my whole my whole core needs to vibrate as those cars pass, and it was great that that sensation was back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, all I have to say to that is, you know, when you guys want to lend me the private jet to go over to Silverstone, <laughs> Abu Dhabi. I'm in, you know, if you want to invite your old buddy, Matt, uh, <laughs> I'd, I'd be happy uh, to come. All I do is take Air Canada from Vancouver to Montreal once every two. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. We'll, we'll make Stay a few phone family, calls. We'll though. set it up. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, honestly, I've, uh, I've spent a lot of time in Miami over the years. Um, I've covered a number of events down there. It used to be a sort of a regular vacation spot for me and uh I, I still have family that winters in miami um in fact i was just there a couple years ago um uh, before this whole pandemic uh what a magnificent spot for f1 and i'm familiar even with the course or uh because near the football stadium i've been in that football stadium a number of times and it's tremendous because it's it's huge parkways that encircle you know an eighty thousand seat football stadiums in, in what is really not actually that dense an area by Miami standards, uh, population wise. So I, uh, I really look forward to this race. I, I've been meaning to get to Austin. We were going to go to Austin this October. Uh, alas, everything, uh, you know, blew up, but, um, I look forward to going to Miami and, you know, Austin for me has as much as it's not really a Texas city, um, it, it's kind of been a little bit of a clunky fit with F1. It's not on brand, if you will, with Formula One. There are some, like, I've, 
there's some significant differences between Texas and F1. So it's, it's been neat seeing those two cultures sort of collide a little bit. And uh, I do like the track for the on, on for the on track excitement. There's been a lot of uh, pretty good passes and racing there. As I'm not as I'm, but you know Miami is way more an international city, right? Mm-hmm. Like Americans don't see well outside their borders. Um, that is not something America does very well. Um, but Miami is such a melting pot, uh, you know, a place where you hear Spanish before you hear English on the streets. That I think the F1 world is going to get to Miami, and I think that's going to be just a, a marvelous success. Yeah. Uh, in terms of having fans congregate on what is typically a pretty hot vacation spot uh, and sunny destination to begin with, um, but also a city that has glitz, has glamour, you know, has panache uh like miami does so i uh i've told my girlfriend that's our next trip so uh, maybe mrs daly and mrs hamilton can have some company so now so so now the question is going to be is it going to be your private jet or ours so (laughs) we got some details to work out here yeah all right let's take a a quick break uh, again here guys and then uh, i do want to go back and uh, mark i know you're just chomping at the bit there to talk about uh, your proposal that you have for liberty media and this whole concept that we've come up with majors for the uh for the grand prix circuit anyways we'll do that in just a moment as we take a quick break here so don't go away we'll be right back Okay, well, welcome back to the show. You're with Mark and Mark, Daly and Hamilton, and also joining us is Mr. Matt Sakaris from Sakaris and Price. And we're talking Formula One. And Mark, we talked about it, or you actually kicked off this conversation on uh, on Twitter this afternoon. And uh, so maybe you should take it from here. This is something we've uh, tossed about and we've talked amongst uh, ourselves on the show previously, just uh, the, the whole introduction of the, um, of the sprint races that are coming in. And this concept that you have of making several premiere of, uh, weekend events events throughout the calendar, uh, basically majors like you might see, say, on the, the, the Pro Tennis uh, Tour. And, uh, well, I don't want to steal your thunder. I've got some, I've got a couple of uh, opinions of my own, but why don't you take it and then uh, we'll, we'll weigh in on the discussion. Yeah. yeah, I appreciate that. And I think one of the things that excites me most about Formula One right now is the ownership body and liberty. I, I think Formula One in so many ways was being held back and really strangled by Bernie and his group. And one of the things I have to credit Liberty for is opening up the sport, making it more accessible, embracing social media, but they're also willing to try things on and off the track that I don't think the sports necessarily would have, would have entertained in the past. And, you know, we're talking about things like qualifying sprints and and all of those different kinds of concepts. One of the things that I think could potentially be really important for this sport is it needs to find a way to create an event or multiple events that transcend the calendar. And you see this in golf. You see this in tennis. You have certain, like we all know what the four majors are in golf. You probably don't know the rest of the calendar unless you follow the PGA. Likewise, the broad sports community probably can pick out the four majors in tennis, but they probably couldn't kind of point out any of the other events on the tour. And one of the things that Indy does really well is even though the bulk of its calendar, it's, it's ovals, it's super speedways, it's road courses. Even though in the eyes of most American consumers, sports consumers, it's pretty irrelevant. The Indy 500 event transcends sports. It transcends motorsports and it transcends sports. And it brings in an audience that you would probably never do expect to see in that championship. And one of the things that we've been kicking around the last couple of months is how could or what could Formula One do to, to try to replicate that experience? And we've been talking about this concept of 
you know what, identifying four majors. The benefit to Liberty is, hey, look, if you want to host a major, you need to bid big dollars. You can charge big dollars, but you get some really cool benefits. You know what? You're going to have the exclusive access to a qualifying sprint race. You're going to have access to uh, awarding double the championship points. So it means more to the teams. Like you could do some really cool things with this. And then all of a sudden, from a marketing and a branding perspective, you've got four events that you can build your calendar around. Because what we've seen the last six or seven years is there's some great races in the middle of the summer. But it's usually the dog days of Formula One at that point. The championships decided there's nothing compelling. But what if you were able to identify two or three or four races, brand them as majors, double the championship points awarded with them? What could you do with that from a marketing appeal to kind of broaden the exposure of the sport? But yeah, that's something we've been talking a lot about, especially in light of the Indy 500 last weekend, which was a blockbuster success by any standard. Mm -hmm. Well, Mark, I love it. You know, as you were speaking about it, I found myself nodding my head, yes, yes, yes. And by the time you got to the end of it, uh, it, it was so good. Uh, I was wondering when you were going to get a job with Liberty uh, <laughs> as a marketing officer. But, but the other thing that I, you know, that ran through my head as you were explaining it, and maybe this is because of my position being on talk radio here in, in Canada for the last 10 years, we are oftentimes... Um, guilty or at least accused of seeing things through a North American sporting lens. Um, Now, the PGA Tour, I think it would certainly be through a North American American sporting lens. That said, said, you know, tennis grand slams, they touch the world, right? London, Paris, uh, New York, and uh, and Australia. I I, I love the idea of double points for quote-unquote major races. I think we all know Monaco has to be one of them. Um, quite frankly, I think Monza has to be one of them. Um, I would nominate Spa. I think Spa is the best racetrack in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but I'm not sure if the Belgian countryside would resonate uh, as much uh, with the less than hard course, with the softer audience. But no, I, I, I'm with you. Every sort of event is its own equal entity, although I suppose Monaco has a little bit more cachet. I suppose Silverstone has a little more cachet just, you know, because the way we've always consumed it over here in Canada is through the lens of, of British broadcasters like Larry yeah. Walker and now Crofty. Um, so I, I, I'm giving them two thumbs up, Mark Daly. Uh, I, you know... Uh, I, I loved everything I heard. Uh, I thought it'd be marvelous. Yeah, my my only additional take on what uh, what Mark was saying was that um, I, I love the, the the idea that he's come up with. I think that if you're going to have like these major events, you've got to make them regional. You have uh, North America, South America, Asia, the Middle East, so that each geographic region has one. And then I think that one of them, you have to make it uh, the U.S. Grand Prix. I mean, if you can see, I mean, if, if, if Miami has that potential, maybe, you know, they get some other tracks in there in the future. Maybe you have some rotating thing. I mean, it seems that they want to at least have two races in the United States. So I, I think that that, you know, from a, a media point of view, that would be, uh, you know, uh, that has a lot of potential there, too. And it is interesting. There's symmetry there, and I hear what you're saying. Yeah. It probably should be around the world, given the global uh nature of the sport i I certainly wouldn't want to turn a grand prix i haven't seen yet and has a short history into a quote-unquote major yeah um i like austin i'm not sure it's worthy yeah 
can I throw our hat in the ring for Il Notre Dame in the basin of the St. Lawrence off Montreal, Quebec, Canada? Because it's one of the great tracks on the F1 calendar. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it produces drama. It produces unique winners. Uh, it produces all sorts of, you know, it, to me, it's kind of the perfect um, balance between the new tracks and the huge runoff areas and tire barriers and the danger of a street course, even though it's not really a street course, it's a permanent circuit. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, look, I, I think it would even be a great debate marketing tool to get the get conversation starting on which ones should be. Yeah. The forum so I think you'd even have the lead up marketing up and two, uh, where you give fans the opportunity to sort of feel like they're there as part of the construction and the birth uh, of this major's idea. Yeah. Grand plans. Yeah, no, fantastic. Yeah, you know, it is interesting too the way that you have sort of framed it, the way that we view sports uh, from from a, nor- a North American point of view, because a lot of the questions that we get from from listeners, especially people that are new to Formula One, is that they can't really wrap their uh, their minds around the, the the whole idea of dual championships. It's just like, okay, well. What's the difference between the driver's championship and the constructor's championship? Okay, well, obviously one's a team one and one's a driver's one, but how can I equate that to, say, North American sports? And then I always say, I guess the the best way that you could look at, say, the driver's championship is something like the Heisman or the Cy Young or like an MVP award, whereas yeah, the constructors yeah. is yeah. like like the Super Bowl or, or like, like a championship series. But again... It's just, it's just labels, Mark. It's yeah. just labels, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and there are fundamental differences between sort of European sports structure and North American stru- structure. They do a table, right? Their season is the championship. We do a regular season, then we go on to a playoffs for the championships. Um, you know, th- there are clearly some things about Formula One that a North American audience has to wrap its brain around that isn't, you know, reflexive. Um, but I don't think there are bridges I, I don't think these gaps are too far to bridge yeah by any stretch um you know i i think it's reasonable particularly now with the point system it's i think it's a whole lot easier to follow the sport uh for, from a north american point of view than it was in the past matt let me let me ask you a question just while we're on the theme of north americans and north americans coming into the world of formula one how how critical or special do you think it is that we live in this moment right now where we have not one, but two full-time Canadian drivers? Yeah. On the grid? And if you flash back, the last time we had a driver was JV. He kind of flamed out in 2005 after a bunch of, I don't want to say ill decisions, but bad collaborations with teams and engine issues and all kinds of pieces. And his career kind of flamed out. But we're in a position right now where we have two Canadian drivers. They're both very young. They both obviously come from strong financial backgrounds, but from a personality perspective and a charisma perspective, they're both such great guys. How important do yeah. you think that is to the future of F1 in Canada? Well, um, obviously, Mark would help if they were on podiums from time <laughs> to time. And, uh, you know, I don't think that's realistic for Latifi right now. I was hopeful it was more realistic for Lance than it has been through five races so far this year. Although I do, I do have have hopes there, and I'll get back to that in a second. I mean, let's face it: the sport in our country is uh, two names, one family. Uh, Gilles and Jacques Villeneuve. Um, without those two, uh, I don't think the sport comes close to resonating mm-hmm. uh, as much as it has in this country. And you're right, Mark. Like, uh, you know, I was looking at you know some F1 driver 
related the other day, just astonished to see two Maple Leafs there, right? Because like if you saw two German, if you saw two Union Jacks, even if you t- saw two Australians, like you wouldn't bat an eyelash. Uh, but to see two Canadians uh, of a very f- uh, select few, you know, 20 uh, in the world, um, it is quite remarkable. Um, here's what I'll say. I think Lawrence Stroll is as important and influential a figure for the sport in Canada as Lance Stroll is. Mm-hmm. Because here's the thing. Lawrence has all kinds of swag. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, like Lawrence is absolutely in the vein of Flavio Briatore uh, and some of the Ferrari principles over the years, the big outsized personalities, right? Like, you know, even to his drive, like uh, a couple of friends and I uh, uh, like to parrot his line and drive to survive back to each other. I'm the chairman. <laughs> not until twelve thirty, you know, as he checks his, uh, you know, like like Lawrence is uh, is an enormous figure, uh, and if his team started to do better, and let's face it, he wants to win yesterday. Yeah. Um, if his team did better, like I, I think he would be just a marvelous marketing tool in our country because you know, like here's the thing: he's perfect in English, he's perfect in French. Um. You know, he's, so to speak, paid the dues now, buying out a team. Like, he's, he's invested in this sport. Ferrari collector. So he's got a lot of things going for him, both for the dyed-in-the-wool F1 fans, but but also people uh, who are newer to the sport. And, um, you know, but that's barring Lance winning. Like, if Lance were to win, uh, you know, with his charm and good looks and, you know, his personality and he's articulate in both languages – I mean, if Lance were to win, uh, that's a Canadian sports superstar and enormous marketing tool for the sport. You know, it's funny when when I look at Lawrence and when I look at Lance, you know, I, I'm immediately intimidated by Lawrence Stroll. I mean, uh, we oh. watch that uh, that that uh, that one clip in DTS where they're sitting in the factory there, and uh, just the way that he's his eyes are literally on boring into every single person he's talking to or just, uh, you know, he's digesting every single bit of information. But then when you see Lance, he's like every regular 20-something-year-old Canadian kid, you know, like yeah. he, he's very relatable. And then yeah. at the same time, it's just like I, I look at, at Lawrence and I'm just like, yeah, I can totally understand why this guy's like the, the alpha male billionaire, uber successful and everything he's done. It's just like yeah. he has that completely different vibe. And I, I'm sure that uh, he had that sort of entrepreneurial spirit ever since he was about two years old when he probably, you know, started his first company or whatever yeah. it was. I mean, Lance could fit in in a hockey dressing room, right? Oh, 100%. He'd be yeah. A, he'd be one of the more outgoing hockey players and more upbeat. <laughs> and he'd always be interviewed on Hockey Night in Canada because uh, they'd love his uh, enthusiasm. Uh, but, you know, Lawrence just commands a room. Like, I can only imagine how much Lawrence commands a room, room when he wants oh, yeah. to do it. Yeah. You know, yeah. He's, he's an all eyes on me type of guy. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if they were ever to have any success, they're the natural successors to the Villeneuve's in some regard. Right. Yeah, absolutely. The first family, uh, Canada's first family of F1. Yeah. It's so it's so important to remember as well. And I'm just looking at his profile right now. Lance is 22. 
This is yeah. his fifth year True. in Formula One. And I think really the, the way I kind of put it to this for a new Formula One fans, because he skipped Formula Two, right? He he won the Formula Three championship. He skipped Formula Two. To me, he kind of skipped college. He's like that NBA player that goes straight to the <laughs> NBA out of high school. Right. I know That's he's going right. to spend a couple years on the bench getting his reps, learning. But now he's in this great package. And to your point, Mark and I were very excited coming into the season thinking that Aston Martin was going to be able to build on what Racing Point had last yes. year. For a number of technical reasons, they're not there yet. And hopefully Monaco's bit of a, a bit of an inflection point and maybe things will start to turn. But he's still 22. He's still so young. Yeah. And I still think he has tremendous runway. And to be honest, your point about his dad is phenomenal in the sense that long after Lance is out of the sport, Lawrence will either be running a championship team or I, I could see him running the sport. Do you know what I mean? Like he, he's <laughs> got sure. that personality where he could run Liberty. Yeah. And, and he loves it. Yep. You know, and he's got a little bit of that fear factor like Bernie, although in a much bigger body. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I imagine he's physically intimidating as well a little bit. Uh, Lawrence, Mark, I hear your point about Lance and I'm with you and I'm with both of you. Like they are effectively uh, Canada's team, if you will. Um, I drive a Jaguar now, and if they were to happen to go, uh, bring Jaguar back, maybe I'd be a Jaguar fan. But um, for right now, um, Aston Martin is Canada's team. And uh, um, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, oh, here's the counterpoint, Mark. Lance, 22. How old is Max? 23? Yeah. 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 Pretty How close old was Lewis when Lewis started winning? He was winning titles at 22. Yeah. How old was Seb when he started winning? Yeah. Same age. Yeah. Yeah. So do the really special ones now separate themselves by 22, 23? Yeah. Right? Yeah. That becomes that, a yeah. And I hope it's not true. Like, I hope Lance graduates and is like Nico, is like a, you know, a late 20s, early 30s world champion and best in class. Um, but I sort of get the sense now, the way the sport's going, uh, particularly the way we're filling driver spots, that if you're one of the special ones, you're going to get into a cockpit pretty early where you can win. I mean, Lewis did, right, in 07. Um, and, you know, that wasn't very typical. A lot of them had even Seb worked his way up. Uh, but, you know, Lewis got into it was a McLaren, if I'm not mistaken, yep. in 07, right? And uh, I remember I was on Toronto radio the weekend before the uh, Canadian Grand Prix. And I said, look, uh, uh, there's a new super sp superstar in this sport. And it's a man of color. And we have never seen that in Formula One. And I have a feeling that he's going to win this weekend in Montreal um, in the new world. You know, in the world where we're immigrants from everywhere. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, where everybody comes together. Where we have this multicultural harmony. Uh, in Canada. And Lewis won that weekend, and Lewis has won in North America a whole lot, and it's really started a love affair with Lewis in North America. So, um, you know, he is the he is the alpha dog, and I think he has tons of fans over here. Uh, and north of the 49th parallel, uh, I think that's, that's true as well yeah. right now. Yeah. Uh, and until Lance wins, I think it's hard to compete with Lewis Hamilton. Absolutely. He cast good Canadian boys from Vancouver naming their children. <laughs> 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 well, 
You know, my my oldest son's name is uh, Brock, and uh, he keep I keep telling him uh, he he keeps asking me, even though he's twelve, uh, he keeps asking me, "Did you name me because of Brock Besser?" And I just say yes, yeah. e- even though that uh, you know he was born long before Brock Besser joined the Vancouver Canucks. But you know that's a different story for a different day. We're going to take one final time out here, guys. Matt, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about Monaco. We got a race uh, yes. this weekend, so we'll talk about that in the break here, and as we go into our final segment. So, guys, don't go away. We will be right back. All right, Mark. So we have uh, gone through the, uh, the the mailbag. We've got some tweets. We I don't think we've offended any one of our our listeners so far. So we're we're doing pretty good, uh, you know, for for this week. But uh, we still have so one segment to, to go. That now, right, <laughs> <laughs> well, we're trying to keep everybody on side. I think uh, we, we've done a pretty good uh, job so far. But Matt, uh, Matt, I wanted to throw it back to you because uh, when we were talking uh, before we uh, jumped on air tonight, you said you wanted to, you, you feel obligated to, to talk about Monaco. And I know this is a talking point for a lot of people every year, and it's still fresh in our minds because we, we just were there only two weekends ago. Yeah. Well, I mean, I saw all the chatter. I, I had people tweeting at me. Even people texting at me um, about Monaco. And, um, you know, I was like, you mad, bro? Like, what's with all the hate here on, on, on Monaco? <laughs> um, I, I suppose it caught me a little bit off guard because uh, I'm so busy following all the, all the other sports uh, for my job that I don't always follow, follow the minutia of the F1 discussion. Um, and particularly the sort of inside F1 uh, discussion of the Cognoscente and the Sharps. Um, but I was surprised to see how many of our listeners here in Vancouver, Canada, you know, were messaging me about how terrible Monaco is and there's no passing and the cars are too wide now and qualifies the only thing worth watching. And, um, and maybe I'm old school and nostalgic, but I'll say a few things. Number one, I've seen you guys retweet all the tweets that really render this discussion moot to some degree. Monaco is too significant to the sport from an economic and from a brand standpoint to go anywhere. Um, you know, F1 has, for me, always sold glamour. And there is no more glamorous place than Monte Carlo, Monaco. So to the extent this whole discussion is moot, there, there are two chief areas why I still really look forward to and love Monaco and have it on my list of Grand Prix I want to go to when you let me the, the private jet. Uh, <laughs> even, though, you know, I, even though I know I could probably buy a house in one of the most expensive real estate markets in the world here in Vancouver uh, with what it will cost me to do this race properly. Uh, number one is relatability. Uh, a lot of these new tracks, and for safety reasons, but for also racing reasons, are big and wide and have the huge runoff areas and gravel pits and tire barriers can only be so relatable. When you're racing around Monaco, virtually every camera frame is relatable to viewers and relatable in a sense that it's, you know, it's fantasy. It's like, Oh, look at that. Like I can never afford to shop in that car shape, but you know, look, there's a, car chaser there's casino right there look at the yachts and the marina right like i can name you virtually every turn uh at at 
Monaco from Saint Devot to Beau Rivage to Massenet to the Hairpin, Nouvelle Chicane, and, like on and on it goes. I can't name you more than a couple of corners at every other track. And only the good ones too, like the Parabolica and Eau Rouge and you know, Champions Wall and, and that sort of thing. Um, so there's a relatability for just human beings, but particularly new fans with Monaco that you just don't get with big, wide runoff areas, gravel pits, and uh, higher barriers. The second thing is, um, you know, Murray Walker used to say about Michael Schumacher, he's millimeter perfect. When he pulls into the pits, he's not near his marks. He's millimeter perfect on those marks. That's when they used to have to bring the big fuel hose, as you remember, and, and fill it up. So where you stopped in that pit, was very important. I feel like we've taken a little bit of the precision craft out of the driving with some of the bigger, wider tracks. And Monaco, for me, has the perfect balance of requiring that precision skill that you want to cut it thin, but not too thin. We saw Latifi hit the wall at the swimming pool, right, in qualifying. We saw pole sitter, Charles Leclerc, uh, cut the corner too tight at the swimming pool. Uh, and and, uh, and break the Ferrari. Um, I, I love that element still to racing. You, you sort of need to be perfect around that corner 64 times, or however many times, however many laps there is. And, and the best part about Monaco is is it, it's sort of guilt-free, guilt-free because they're never really going fast enough that you fear a heinous accident that if he gets it wrong there, we're all going to see a scene that we don't ever want to see. Mm-hmm. Like I love Eau Rouge. I think it's the best corner in racing, but Holy bleep, you know, a couple of years ago when, uh, Hubert was it Antoine Hubert. Yeah. Um, went off at that corner. Uh, that's something as a racing fan that I, I just don't ever want to see. Like nobody should die for this sport. Um, that said, there should be a danger. There should be a fear factor in this sport. That's how we separate some of these drivers. And, and for me, Monaco has that. It's tight. You got to be perfect with the car. Um, and look, I, I saw the graphic about you know how much longer and how much wider an F1 car is compared to the 70s and 80s uh, when we were racing the same streets of Monaco. And I get it. And it's going to be harder to pass. And I don't want to really hear the complaining from every driver in the paddock. There are places that you can do it. Max and others have shown. You put pressure on a leader. He may screw it up through the Nouvelle Chicane, and you're going to be able to take the lead. Uh, The pit strategy is still there. Um, So, you know, I'm willing to deal with one race a year where we're not seeing passing the plenty or even a lot of opportunity for passing the plenty. Given the flip side, given the intangibles that Monaco brings to the table, yeah, you know, I'll be hundred percent. It's it's not my most favorite track on the the, the circuit. Yeah, sitting here watching me <laughs> and I'm like, he's listening. Yeah, but we don't agree. No, but uh, I, Hamilton looked like he shook his head a couple of yeah. times. But I, I also I feel like I was talking to uh, 
that wasn't that wasn't the uh, preacher to the choir right there. I'm yeah. quite sure by your reaction. Yeah, no, I but I totally agree from the spectacle point of view. And the other thing too is like you, you say about the precision because like we had that uh, that a uh, couple of years ago when Max crashed there in uh, was it in FP3 and then didn't actually get to qualify and he ends yeah. up starting from from the back of the pack and and that is one of those milestone moments especially in his career because he didn't have I, I mean he did pretty good in the race he made up uh, several positions but obviously it wasn't where he wanted to to be but then it was that 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 big reset for him at that point in his, his career because he goes away for two weeks then they they leave Monaco and they go to Montreal he shows up in Montreal without his entourage and then we see uh, Max Verstappen uh, 2.0. And that was just one of those in-your-face yeah. moments in his career. And yeah. incidentally, in that same corner, just coming out of the swimming pool where, where Charles tagged the wall and crashed in, in, in qualifying just uh, you know two weeks ago. So it, it really well, is. Mark, I remember 25 years ago, I saw the retrospective when Olivier Panis won. Yeah. When three cars finished. Yeah. Like, it was incredible. <laughs> Um, you know, Ricardo wins a few years ago. Amazing victory. You know, Lewis had his temper tantrum there a few years ago. You know, Lewis only only won there twice, right? Um, True. So it tends to produce some surprise winners and some surprise podiums, and particularly in combination with Canada when it's back to back with Canada. So I, I, you know, like I think that's healthy for the sport. Like the sport's not competitively balanced, as we all know. Mercedes has been on an incredible run of, of, of seven years here where there hasn't been a question from the opening round in terms of which instructor was the best, which car was the fastest. So yeah, give me the odd track where something haywire could happen. <laughs> Matt, you made a point that I've never thought about before and it really resonated with me as you're speaking that that concept of having a track that is immediately identifiable when you turn yes. on the TV that's important because I'll be honest, I watch every race every year, but if I turned on the TV and it was the Chinese Grand Prix, yeah. it's going to take me 20 minutes to figure out where, exactly. where the race is. And to your point as well, because they push, obviously for FIA safety reasons, because they push the walls and the grandstand so far back from the track, you can't, you can't taste the atmosphere on TV in reality, because there probably isn't a lot, simply because no. the spectators that are there are pushed so far back from the track. So to your point, whether the racing's great, whether the racing's mediocre, it's important because yeah. it's identifiable, because it's relatable. And we talked a lot about this in the pre-race segment, which is it's got a rich history. And, and for that reason alone, there's value in having it on the calendar. And people are going to tune in and people are going to watch. And I think they can do things with the cars. And obviously, 2022, they're going to push the boundaries of what the cars look like in terms of making increasing the degree of parity. But I totally yeah. agree with you in the sense that the sport needs consistency in terms of relatable events. Because if it's all the Chinese Grand Prix, it's too generic. It's like a 1980. Yeah. The Monaco Grand Prix is the only... Grand Prix, my mother can instantly identify. You know, like her man have put her through this sport for however long. <laughs> um, but the Monaco Grand Prix is one she'll sit and watch because she sits there and she likes the Cartier store and the casino and everything, right? <laughs> and, and like, here's the thing, like putting on a Grand Prix race is a massive logistical and you were subject to things by virtue of time, space, location, you know, all sorts of reasons, economics, where it's hard to get everything perfect. And that's one of the things I've heard about Monaco is it's not really sort of the best crowd or atmosphere race on the calendar. Mm -hmm. Well, that's okay. 
It looks fantastic on television. You want an atmosphere race? Go to Monza. Go to Mexico. Uh, you know, though, no, but like their atmosphere races, right? Um, God bless the Austria-Germany countryside, but it's a long way out for major cities. It becomes logistically difficult for the public to go out there. You know, like I have a friend who's into this sport who is a very successful media executive here in Canada and, you know, has ridden buses two hours out uh, to watch, uh, you know, races from the Red Bull ring and, and whatnot. If you're going to have a race in a city, in an urban environment, you know, you're probably going to have to surrender some things that if you had more space um, would be more ideal. So, you know, it's narrow. It's narrow at Monaco. It, it's narrow at, at Melbourne. Uh, so you deal with the idiosyncrasies of every race and every locale. And uh, I, for one, um, you know, I, for one, love to see them racing in cities as well as the countryside. Well, and there is no better city to race in uh, from a backdrop point of view and a setting point of view than Monte Carlo. Well, that's why it makes it such a, an interesting prospect to, to be going back to Baku City this uh, this weekend because you, we talk about some of these iconic uh, corners. Yeah. I think one of the most bizarre uh, corners I think I've ever seen in my entire life is where you yes. that twenty foot wide entrance into that uh, corner by by a castle of all things, a castle, a castle on Mark, a form. <laughs> a castle, which is Somewhere amazing. In that castle, there's a damsel in distress. It's good <laughs> storytelling for this. First time I saw Baku, I was like, what the hell is this? There's a damn castle there. They are like, it's got a medieval quality, right? Like the juxtaposition of that machine, uh, our million, many millions of dollars, man-made everything by this like 500-year-old mortar and block castle is just magnificent i love it it's it's Um, such a stark contrast you have like this literally space age technology whipping by at 200 miles an hour and you expect somebody to come you know galloping out of the front gates of the castle uh, you know knight in shining armor on the back of a horse but bridge comes down and flattens the car it's a mario video game uh right um so no i i love I, i love the variety and frankly um and I've never been to Azerbaijan. I, I acknowledge hand in the air. But um, if, if there's something in the backdrop of your Grand Prix uh, that is indigenous or, and can sort of brand your city or brand your country, it's 100 million eyeballs once a year. You couldn't afford to buy it advertising-wise, right? Um, so bravo to Baku. And to Azerbaijan, like they they have a track and they've attracted a race that, number one, has provided some really great drama. It's been fun racing there. Well, I mean, Uh, over its brief history, but but also has something distinctive and relatable about it the castle. Yeah. that sort of distinguishes it from the rest. I, I know Mark wants to jump in here because as soon as you said like some uh, very uh, you know memorable moments, I know he wants to talk about uh, Sebastian Vettel and Lewis Hamilton wheel banging each other behind the the safety car a couple of years ago. I know that's where you're going to take it, Mark. Uh, am I correct or or, or no? Uh, close. And I was just going to agree. This is this is my favorite. Honestly, 
of all the races on the calendar, this is one of the ones I get most excited about. One, yeah. because the backdrop is glorious. It's incredibly unpredictable. It's got tight city streets. It's got the castle as a backdrop. It's got that absurd 2.2 kilometer straight where the cars are hitting 300 yes. kilometers an hour. It's like, it has a little bit of, of everything. And it's also got some unpredictability. We've seen a manhole cover got sucked up into the bottom. <laughs> yeah, unfortunate. yeah. But things you don't normally see. And to your yeah. point as well, a few years ago on the podcast that I was working on previously, we did a poll and the poll was very honestly, have you ever heard of Baku before Formula One went there? No. 90% of our listeners had never heard of it. The other 10% were lying, straight up lying. <laughs> yeah. As a marketing exercise, this is invaluable for a country. And to your point, Mark, I think some of the, the most interesting moments from the last couple of years happened there, whether it was... Danny Ricardo driving into the back of Max Verstappen mm -hmm. or Lance Stroll taking a podium, but losing second place like yes. meters away from the finish line. And yes. Lewis allegedly uh, brake checking Seb, who then bounces into the side of him, and Perez having a couple of great podiums. There's been so much great stuff, and we've only had four races there. It's absolutely crazy. And Mark, you look at the circuit map map and there's like a hexagon <laughs> followed by that absurd straight you're talking about like it almost looks like the symbol for male or female like i i sit there and i can't conceive uh, of driving it um given you know how it's just you know like one of these things is not like the other yeah. uh in terms of you look at all the circuit maps uh, uh, over the course of the year baku stands out it stands out there too so but, so, yeah, no, like, I, I love the fact that we have this sort of stretch in the calendar. And my understanding is Miami's going to go into this spot, too, like somewhere around here with Canada, Baku, and uh, Monaco, um, where you're, you're racing in, in cities. And, you know, in terms of, of Canada and the Canadian Grand Prix, like, yeah, well, Circuit Gilles Villeneuve is a fantastic track. But the other amazing thing that we have going for, for our Grand Prix, and you know, it's the single most attended sporting event in Canada every year, non-pandemic, so mm -hmm. 25,000 people there every year. Like It absolutely dwarfs the next biggest sporting event in our country. And of course, we never have 100 million eyeballs on our country sporting-wise either. So all those things apply to us too, Mark, in terms of a marketing play uh, that Baku and, and Azerbaijan has, is you know, this is a man-made island in the basin of the St. Lawrence River. And it looks out onto the skyline of downtown Montreal. Like, it's an incredible marketing tool for that city and, and for our country. And, you know, and as someone whose family, uh, you know, all grew up there, uh, it's still the, our familial home. Um, you couldn't conceive of the city without the Grand Prix. You, you couldn't conceive of what, you know, tourism would be like without the Grand Prix. Um, so yeah, um, I, uh, I am glad this pandemic is nearly over because, uh, I endeavor to go see uh, some of these races, uh, and, and drag my girlfriend like the two of you. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, the 
But before we wrap it up and get some uh, predictions here, you know, it, it's funny you should say that uh, because when I was watching, uh, you know, the, the, the 500 last weekend, it, it was such a stark contrast because I'm watching, you know, the, the, the race, I'm watching Helio Castroneves win the, the Indy 500, 130 or 40,000 people in the stands at Indianapolis. And then afterwards, I go down to the, the grocery store here in uh, Port Moody. I got my mask on and, uh, you know, I, I'm cringing every time somebody comes within 50 feet of me, right? <laughs> It's just, it's uh, such a, a weird world that uh, we, we live in now. But uh, you're just going back to to, to Baku now. Uh, again, a very unique uh, track in and of, of itself. We've been there three times, three different uh, winners, no repeat uh, winners. We had uh, Ricardo win in uh, 2017 in the first uh, first edition. Then we had Hamilton and Bottas. Last year, we had no Azure, Azure Buying Grand Prix. Uh, again, it is one of the longest tracks on the circuit uh, at just over six kilometers or 3.73 miles. Uh, it's uh, a shorter in uh, total uh, laps uh, that we run, only 51 uh, laps. I'm just curious, uh, what kind of race are you uh, expecting this weekend, guys? And um, this one for me is different because it's it's not quite as tight and as short as Monaco, but it's not a full-on you know purpose-built uh, track uh, either. It's sort of a, a bit of a hybrid in between. So I don't know if this is more advantage uh, Mercedes or advantage Red Bull. So I'll, I'll be honest when trying to figure out who's going to be good at this one. To, uh, I know it's not going to be Ferrari. I think they had their moment to shine at Monaco. So I think it's going to be back between the, the, the usual suspects. Well, uh, First of all, Mark and Mark, like amazing. I think we're like 90 minutes into this conversation. Uh, <laughs> Ed, you'd keep me an hour. So the bill's in the mail. Uh, <laughs> we, we agreed on that hourly rate beforehand. So. <laughs> I know I'm long-winded. Um, so I'm not going to pretend to know anything about the way these cars are set up for the first time in two years at Baku and what could happen here. Um what I will say and what I will hope and Hamilton hit it was, you know, Lance nearly had a second here once upon a time. So hopefully that Aston Martin momentum, if you can call it that from Seb's finish uh, in Monaco continues here uh, because I'd like this to be a broader sort of field of contenders for podium this week. But I was going to say we're 90 minutes in here. We haven't once mention the battle at the top with Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen, that Verstappen is the driver's leader, that Red Bull is the constructor's leader. Like, honestly, shame on us. We have <laughs> hit some topics here, but haven't hit the big enchilada. Um, I am just so hopeful that we see these two magnificent drivers, and they are magnificent drivers, both of them. Um, you know, like when I... I, I would bet right now, when it's all said and done, that Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen will be top five all-time drivers. I mean, Lewis is already there, obviously. Yep, yeah. But I think Max will get there, too. Uh, he's just a marvelous. He's a prodigy, really. Uh, I really hope we see them going toe-to-toe in whatever order. You know, Somebody asked me today on Twitter when they heard I was doing your podcast, they're like, oh, my God, I've been listening to your show for 10 years. You're an F1 fan. Who do you, who do you root for? <laughs> and I said, you know, I don't really root for any team. I root for drivers. Obviously, I root for the Canadians. and But I root for Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen to have an absolute Donnybrook throughout the year. Yeah. You know, for this to be a dogfight right down to the end, toing and throwing back and forth. Um, because, you know, it's it's been so interesting. We all know the Mercedes doesn't run great when it's not 
out front in the dirty air. It's not designed, as they say, to pass people. It's designed to run ahead of people. Uh, and Max is the opposite, right? Like Max is very comfortable chasing the rabbit and, and going for that pass. Um, so I love the fact that we have not only both drivers playing to their strengths, but also in the reverse roles now, right? To mm-hmm. see how they handle it. Uh, Lewis is the chaser. Max is the jackrabbit. So I'm just hopeful that what we've seen through the first five weeks here uh, extends through, what is it, 17 more races, however many it is, uh, through this season. And uh, if it's to happen uh, at the castle and uh, in Baku uh, on the tight circuit and with the ridiculous straight and the tight corner and like everything that this track has to offer, I'm all for that. Mark, you, you look like you're, you're coming up with like a well thought out uh, your response to that. Uh, you, you know, I, I see the gears turning in your head as you were doing, doing all the math here, how this is going to work out. Well, uh, well, <laughs> done. well done. Honestly, I, I agree with everything Matt said, right? If you're a TV network, if you're a podcast host, if you publish an F1 blog, if you're an F1 Twitter freak, we all want that battle especially between these two drivers because on the one hand max winning would validate him as an all-time great lewis winning in a really tight competition would once again validate him as an all-time great because hey you've had a great car but now you've got to go toe-to-toe with somebody with a car that is of an equivalent package i think it would validate both of them but all of us would benefit if this goes down to the wire. If the championships decided in July, the season's a write-off. And I don't think that's going to happen, but hopefully this goes right down to the wire and we're still tuning in at, at Australia and Saudi for Jeddah and for Abu Dhabi. But I think this weekend, I, I just feel like Red Bull has that car dialed in. Sergio Perez has had a lot of success at this track. He secured a yeah. couple of podiums, especially after last Sunday. He seems more comfortable in that car than he, he had in any previous weekend. Feel like it could be a big weekend for for the Red Bull team and hopefully for Bottas as well. You know what? I'm not the biggest Bottas fan. He's a great guy. He doesn't deserve the bad luck he's had this year. That pit fiasco, that was unfortunate. I, I don't assign any blame to him. Being taken out by Russell in week two, that was tough. But hopefully, as as much as I want a close drivers championship, I want a close constructors championship as well. Yes. Because then it's not so much just about talking about Max and Lewis, but what's happening between Valtteri and Sergio. Because the two, one of the two of them, is going to help decide the the constructors championship. Well, and Mark, what I would interject, and if I'm not mistaken, Daly put it on the notes. We just haven't gotten to it yet. Um, is Valtteri in that Mercedes all year? Because, uh, you know, I, I've seen the stuff on Russell wanting to know by summer break. Yeah. It, it's a great you know, question, quite, isn't quite it? Frankly, there, I think it's been three years in a row now where Valtteri's won a race or been close to winning a race early in the season or been felled by some sort of awful uh, mechanical problem early in the season. Like, Bottas isn't a contender here. Yeah. You know, is a contender. I, I, and I can understand how, you know, there's politics involved here in Mercedes once Lewis to be the lead driver again this year. But can we imagine how great it would be if George Russell's in the other Mercedes at some point later this year? Like that could be amazing. Yeah. To me, that's the four best drivers the two teams have had um, in some time. Like that would get me really excited because a push from below for Lewis on top of the push with Max, like you're seven time world champion. Prove it. <laughs> let's in the hot water and see if you're a teabag still, right? Like, let's see if you can handle it. 
Uh, I would love to see those storylines later this season. And frankly, I think Russell is just better than Bottas right now. Yeah, it, it is interesting too because uh, there was that uh, that story that was uh, circulating this week that uh, after that debacle, that uh, pit stop in in Monaco, that uh, I, I think Total Wolf was saying, oh, you know, Valtteri didn't stop, you know, one hundred percent on his marks or something like that, and then so the wheel gun went on there crooked, and then you know that shredded the wheel nut and everything like that. And Bottas, he said, no, well, if I go and look at, it, I was pretty much spot on my marks when I went in for my pit stop. So I'm kind of wondering, is this the first kind of like public, uh, you know, the building the foundation? to kind of wow. let him down slowly, right? I, I'm not sure if I totally buy that from Toto. That said, Murray Walker, Michael Schumacher, millimeter perfect, right? Yeah. If wasn't millimeter perfect, I'm not surprised. And then, you know, the other thing I read is that Toto really got into uh, Russell uh, for the accident with, with Bottas at, um, oh, at Imola. Yeah. And, and frankly, that was George's fault. Like yep. he got side by side and he lost his nerve a little bit. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't Valerie's fault. It was George's fault. Yep. Uh, I think George knew it. I think George knew it even before he hit the barrier. Um, and I think he was so uh, rebellious about it and on the radio and screaming at Bottas because he knew it. And I think Martin Brundle was great to point that out on the broadcast. But, you know, that, that Toto was all over him about that to me is a signal. Mm hmm. Like, me that you know Toto wants George to be the next one. Toto wants George in that Mercedes sooner rather than later. And that George sort of messed up in a mo moment of big pressure and Toto got all over him, you know, tells me, gives me a little bit of an insight in terms of the timetable here. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and George into a Mercedes. And, um, you know, I think it happens this year. I do think it happens this year. I think you're going to get to the point like Album uh, in a Red Bull and like Gasly in a Red Bull uh, where you just cannot sacrifice the second car as often as the current driver is sacrificing points in the second car to get to the team goals. You know, like Horner said something on Drive to Survive about Album where he said, I just can't remember the last time he's done the job. You know, <laughs> qualified on the second row, finished fourth. That's all we're asking. Shit, we're not asking you to win the race. Yeah. We're asking you to win maximum points as the second car. And I think Valtteri's going to have an issue with that as this year goes along. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder that uh, the, the the more that uh, Red Bull's uh, able to apply the pressure with that second car and uh, Sergio Perez to that maybe force uh, Mercedes' hand a little bit into making that decision. Because, you know, as, as Wolf always says, uh, we're not here uh, you know, chasing wins, we're chasing perfection. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's that they want to be as perfect as possible, and uh, which uh, I guess is an admirable thing to be, you know, a goal to have, uh, you know, if you're trying to be perfect but uh you know well, they, they don't like to live wins can he give some to aston martin and the <laughs> no he can have his perfection if we get a canadian win i'd be happy with that fellas yeah exactly hey matt uh, I, I think uh you know this is a good place uh, to tie it up nicely we promised we we're going to take uh, just keep you for an hour it's been about seven hours and 38 minutes but if i look at the counter here so we appreciate you hanging out uh, again, uh, you know, really thrilled that you're able to to come and hang out with us. And uh, again, congratulations uh, on you and Blake, and, and and I'd like to say the new show, but the uh, you know the revived show. But so before we let you go, just uh, let everybody know where.
where they can uh, follow you guys online. I, I know I, I, I apologize. This isn't as nearly as luxurious or uh, as uh, maybe well appointed as the blanket fort that you guys have, yeah. but <laughs> we, we try our best. Yeah. yeah. We're, uh, we're building a studio right now. So uh, we're at a temporary location as we speak, but uh, um, well, first of all, fellas, just delighted that we connected here, uh, that I, we have two such so sophisticated, knowledgeable uh, fans and podcasters on Formula One here in my community of Vancouver, BC, Canada. It's thecarisonprice.com. It's 3 to 6 p.m. Pacific. Talk each and every day. We're also available on podcasts wherever you get your your podcast. I don't necessarily feel like our audiences cross over all that much because, you know, <laughs> four hour uh, talk show in Canada for 10 years. And, you know, we don't talk a ton of F1 because it's just not really what the audience demands here just yet. Um, but let's hope we built it a little bit here tonight and let's hope we, the three of yeah, us sure. continue to build it here in our hometown. Uh, certainly we're no drive to survive, nor could we be. Uh, <laughs> But, but I'm happy to indulge all the sort of new fans and the ones that have questions uh, and um, who want to continue this conversation of more F1 conversations uh, it, uh, across my social channels at Matt Sakaris on Twitter. Uh, we're on Instagram as well at Sakaris and Price. Uh, and um, just delighted to make both your acquaintances. And I, uh, I hope that, you know, and for some across the world, this will be strange, but some of the races actually come on at night in Vancouver, BC. <laughs> 30 p.m. starts or a 12.30 p.m. start. And uh, on those occasions, guys, I, I'd be delighted to meet up with you somewhere out in the city. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Dr. Glass, yeah and watch and experience a race together. So thanks well, for having me on. Thanks yeah, for the time. It's a pleasure. We'll, we'll leave the jet at the airport that time. We'll pick you up in the private helicopter and we'll, please, we'll yeah, we'll, we'll please, do something. Please, <laughs> please. Uh, something tells me that the 26 hour flight to Abu Dhabi is going to go just like that. <laughs> the conversation that's going to flow, gents. So thanks very much. Thank you again. Appreciate Ladies and gentlemen, Matt Sakaris uh, joining us again tonight. And again, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so on Twitter at Scuderia F1 Pod, or you can get in touch uh, via the email at Scuderia F1 Pod at gmail.com. And that's it. That's a wrap. Uh, we will be back in a couple of days to recap the Azerbaijan Grand Prix and whatever drama and excitement unfolds. And until then, have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you guys again in a couple of days. Bye for now.